TGIM Timari. This is episode 289. And it really cut that shame out of my life. And I started to forgive myself. And I started to believe that I was worthy of like life, love and happiness. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Early. Early took their last drink on November 16th, 2019. They're living off the grid and they are 32 years old. Early's story is very powerful and I really enjoyed listening and learning from them. When Early emailed me, they emailed saying that the recovery community isn't having enough conversations about co-occurring mental disorders. I honestly 100% agree with this statement. Many people who are struggling aren't exclusively struggling with just alcohol, but they may also be struggling with another mental health disorder. And I just really want to applaud Early's courage for coming forward and sharing their journey with us. And quick side note... If you find the Recovery Elevator podcast beneficial and you are an Amazon user, I mean, I don't really know who doesn't shop on Amazon these days, but you can support our project by making your next Amazon purchase via our link www.recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. All you have to do is type this in your browser, shop as usual, and then Amazon takes care of the rest. So happy shopping. All righty. Let's work on finding your better you. I'm going to stay on this topic of co-occurring disorders for a little bit. After a brief Google search, I found that co-occurring disorders are also commonly known as dual diagnosis. The phrase describes a person who has more than one medical issue, either with two diseases simultaneously or one disease successively after the other. These conditions may be mental or physical or a combination of both, often Coexisting disorders make each of the diseases worse than if they were experienced individually. Co-occurring conditions that involved addiction and mental health are particularly common because similar areas of the brain are involved with both. And just for the record, anxiety and mood disorders include schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, conduct disorders, PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, and then ADHD attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I personally struggle with depression. I recovered from a long-term eating disorder and I'm sober. So the real question here is, do I have a triple diagnosis? Do I win? Where's my medal? Just kidding. I try not to get tied down with labels and I really do believe that it's important to detach from our story and from narratives that brought us so much pain. However, knowing ourselves is important. Treating ourselves is important. Mental health matters. If you're struggling with multiple disorders, habits, or addictions, you're not alone. This is common. It's just not being talked about. It's very scary to confront dark parts of us. And honestly, it's just easier to not even think about it. But I'm here today to remind you that there is always light casting every shadow. You are good. Early, our guest today, knows they are not the only ones out there. After our interview, they asked me to please drop their email on the show notes in case anybody wants to reach out and talk. So thanks, Kate, for including that info on today's show notes. And thanks again, Early, for sharing so bravely. 
All right, eso es todo. That's my weekly dose of rambles on RE for this episode. And before we hear from early, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive and loving community, and you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or are simply sober curious, you'll get both of these on Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. What is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Another portion goes to in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you there. Early, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm nervous, but I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm really excited to talk to you. I actually just recorded an Instagram little video telling some of our listeners that we're going to touch on some topics that haven't been discussed on here as much. So I'm very excited and very grateful that you decided to come on. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Can you let us know when the last time you took a drink was early? Yeah, it was uh, November 16th, 2019. All right. So coming up on eight months, if I'm doing my math right, which math is in my strong suit? Yeah, it's just about <laughs> 27 and 8 somewhere. Yep. All right, great. And can you give listeners a little background? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun early? Yeah, so I'm 32. I live off-grid on the Ozark Plateau. My family is three dogs who are my very best friends. For work, I've gone back and forth between doing migrant farm work and working in restaurants. And for fun is, I guess, all the stuff that's kind of like connected with off-grid living, like learning about all the plants and animals around me. I love birds. And then the like more fun side of the cho- the off-grid chores, like I enjoy uh, chopping wood um, because I heat my home with a wood stove. So yeah, just all the all the stuff that goes with living out in the woods. So tell me, tell me about this off-grid concept. Because when I was in high school, I read uh, Henry, David, Henry David Thoreau saying that he moved to the woods. So off the grid just means you live in the woods? Yeah, and it means that I'm not connected to the electrical power grid or any sort of like city water or sewer or anything like that. So I have solar power and then I collect rainwater and spring water and I have a composting outhouse. So I pretty much am just like, just kind of like connected with the earth in a way that feels more ethical to me than, you know, using a ton of fossil fuels and, and all sorts of stuff like that. Ah, uh, this is inspiring. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing. I had never heard the concept of off grid. So thank you. And then of course, I have to ask no ele- Do you have TV? Do you watch Ozark? Have you heard of Ozark? <laughs> No, I don't have a TV. I pretty much just like 
engage with the the physical world around me. So I've heard of Ozark. Um, my sister told me about it, but no, I'm not not really connected with a lot of technology like that. Uh, you pro- your mental state is probably in a way saner place in terms of being plugged into technology and probably pumping three times as more information as we need to have in our brains at any given moment, thanks to your off-grid decision. Yeah, it definitely is. It's calming and it, and it works for me. It's not for everyone, but it, it works really well for me. I love that. And you have to do what works for you. Can you give listeners some background on your history with drinking? When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol was no longer serving you? And just when did you decide to think about considering this lifestyle of no drinking? Yeah, so pretty much my whole life has been characterized by like very intense addiction. Um, The first time I drank was when I was 10. I remember uh, stealing Miller High Life from my friend's parents' fridge and like thinking it was so gross that we like mixed Kool-Aid into it because like we were 10, you know? (laughs) And then now it's like I have a niece and nephew and when they were both 10 years old, I looked at them and I was like, those are children, like small children. And that was the age that for some reason I was like, like drawn to start using substances. And then as time went on, I just stole alcohol from people's parents like as often as I could. And I think the first time I blacked out was when I was maybe 14 and then drinking in the mornings by the time I was 16, vomiting in my sleep around then. The thing that really drew me to alcohol when I was younger is that I was very socially awkward. I had very few friends and something about being a deviant and engaging with alcohol and cannabis at a young age, like led me into this acceptance with the other bad kids. And now that I'm an adult and I've gone through like a lot of therapy and stuff, I've re I've received an autism spectrum diagnosis. So my like social awkwardness as a kid makes a lot more sense now as an adult. But back then I found using substances and partying as like this very important doorway into like being able to have friends, which felt so important when I was younger. But by the time I was 18, I was drinking every single day without fail. And when I was 18 was the first time that I ever was like, this has got to stop. And I tried to quit drinking just with willpower and it lasted like 12 hours before I sent my partner out of the house to like go buy me beer because I couldn't do it. And back then there was not like a lot of podcasts or resources or whatever. And it seemed like the only things you could do were like accept God and go to AA or white knuckle it. And neither of those things worked for me. So I just went back and forth from the time that I was 18 to I guess last November Uh, I was 31, I'm 32 now, of trying and trying and trying to quit drinking and just like always coming back to it because I, I didn't know how to do the work. I didn't have the resources. I just like, I was just trying and using willpower and and failing, you know? Yeah. It's hard to be in that, in that loop of failing yourself and failing your intention. Cause I'm sure that every time you tried and then it didn't happen, it's, it's just such a, such an awful cycle and it's so draining so when did you when did you just want to backtrack a little bit when did you get this diagnosis from your therapist where you were able to kind of zoom out and be like oh no wonder were you in your 20s or was it very recently when were you able to piece that part of you together basically 
When I was 29 was when I really started getting therapy. So when I was 29, I, in like an extremely drunken state, I sexually assaulted my best friend. And there's like absolutely no excuse for that. But certainly I never would have done it if I wasn't extremely intoxicated. And shortly after that, I was trying so hard to quit drinking then too, because one of the only things she asked me to do, she's like, you have to quit drinking. And I was like, oh my God, I have to, like, I'm hurting people around me, you know? And so I ended up checking myself into a mental hospital and lo and behold, they were like, you're bipolar, you're having a manic episode. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I just been so drunk for so long, um, medicating all the symptoms of these mood swings that I was having that I had no idea that this was going on. And then after I got out of the mental hospital, I started with a therapist and with talking with her, it came out that I also have autism spectrum <laughs> disorder. And then also through talking with her, it came out and we started to talk about like the sexual abuse I experienced as a child. And so I have PTSD also, and like all of this stuff just started piling on and I just drank my way through the discomfort and all the symptoms, you know? Yes. I, and, oh, gosh, you're so brave. And I'm thanking you right now for bringing up these conversations that are really hard for people not just to listen to, but to speak up to. So thank you, first and foremost. And what went through your mind when you got all of these diagnoses from your therapist? Because I feel like when this happens... It's like one out of two. You're either like, okay, I understand myself better now. And what, what ended up happening to me when I was in your shoes with other disorders was like, fuck. Like, am I just doomed? What am I going to do? Uh, do I even have to try? Is it even worth pursuing to have a quote unquote normal life? Because look at all of these things piling up. Or what, what went through your brain? Tell me about what emotional state you were in then. You said you were around 29, 30. Yeah, I was uh, actually I checked into the mental hospital the first time the day after my 29th birthday. So um, I caused that harm to my best friend when I was 29. And then the day after my 30th birthday was the first time I went into the mental hospital. And when I left, they I was detoxed from alcohol, which is very difficult. And then I left all of a sudden with all of these mental disorders that I just no clue that I had and on five different psychiatric medications. And when one day you think you just have an alcohol addiction and the next day you're taking an antipsychotic and you're like, wait, I'm psychotic now? <laughs> like, I just like, I crumbled. And the thing about going to the doctor too is like, by and large, alcohol addiction is not seen as a health problem. It's seen as a moral failing. So when they give me all of these medications, they're like, oh, and you can't drink on these, by the way. And instead of like offering me some concrete steps or work or ways that I can like get rid of my addiction to alcohol or at least get it in check before I start taking these like handfuls of other kind of psychiatric medications and like trying to come to grips with that, I just like didn't receive any of that support from from like my doctors or anything. So of course, the only coping mechanism that I'd had for 20 years before that is drinking alcohol, you know, and like, so what did I continue to do? I was like, Oh, God, I'm crazy now. I can't handle this. So I drank. 
Yeah, it's everything you knew. And I love that you said the words moral failure because it looks like on this episode we're going to be touching on multiple stigmas around all of all of this. And one of them is is this stigma around alcohol. Like you said, it's not even considered a health disease at some points. It's more considered a, a personal issue that you have to learn how to get in check. And, and it's just not addressed medically the way that, that it should be, I think. So tell me what happened after this. When you left and you had this recipe for disaster, basically, because you went in, you went out, and people think that just by giving you the meds, they've, they've solved your problems. But that was just the beginning. So what happened afterwards? Like, <laughs> I knew I had to get rid of the alcohol in my life, but I still had no tools to do that. So I would white knuckle it and get sober for a few days and then just fall back into it. And slowly over time, I like started to find different resources that started to help me. And I started doing yoga. I like changed my diet. I started drinking more water, getting regular sleep, just like basic needs that are like so much more important than anyone gives them credit for. And every step of the way, I felt like I was getting closer, but I kept falling back into it and I kept always drinking. And I was like secretly drinking because as I was drinking more and more, my friends started to give up on me. They're like, you hurt this person so badly and she wanted you to quit drinking and you didn't, you're not doing that. And so I started to internalize this feeling of shame that like I was bad, not just guilt, for doing something bad, but shame, like I am a bad person. And I started to spiral downwards, secretly drinking, isolating, being alone, just like not eating and vomiting and like having these brief bits of respite where I would try to gain these coping mechanisms, but then always falling back into it and just feeling worse and worse and worse and having like multiple suicide attempts. And like, <laughs> there's this like concept that People think that, that like there's a rock bottom, but I think that rock bottom is a myth. Like I have two DUIs, rock bottom. I sexually assaulted my best friend, rock bottom. I showed up to my therapist appointment so drunk that she drove me home and I fell asleep and vomited in my sleep in her car, rock bottom. You know, like I got taken out of a Walmart parking lot for alcohol poisoning, rock bottom, right? Like I, when people experience these things and they have... Um, and addiction and other mental health problems and stuff, the feelings of shame are so profound that I don't think a rock bottom moment is going to like all of a sudden turn someone's life around because people with addictions to alcohol, like myself included, when we experience these extremely difficult things in our life, we do what we do best, which is continue to drink alcohol and just like make it worse, you know? I feel like... We all have different rock bottoms. I love your theory of it's a myth because it's true. I also, I've heard it reframed differently where you need more than one could be the other way to think about it. Or it doesn't matter if you have a physical, tangible rock bottom, you have to touch bottom in a different way, either like spiritually for some people, emotionally for other people. But I, I agree with you. If you don't have the tools to do anything differently than the thing that is harming you, but at the same time also giving you relief. That's the thing about alcohol is that it's harm and relief at the same time. And if that's the only way that your brain knows how to get relief, either from that 
or other addictions, you're going to keep going there. It's just science, basically, and, and you've taught your brain that through repetition. So you're 100% right. And I just want to say the thing that the word that keeps popping in my mind as you're telling me your story is just grit. Like, where did this grit come from where this kept on happening and escalating? And then on November 15th, 2019, you had your last drink. Did you have a terrible night? Or where did this grit to keep trying come from? And what happened right after November 15th of last year? Uh, that night was just an average drunken night of like sending annoying drunk texts to people and embarrassing myself. But I guess like the major like large life shifting change that happened in my life was a about one year before that my father just like randomly dropped out of a massive heart attack. And I was spiraling out of control drinking at that time too. And that event singly took myself out of my own life for the first time in a long time. And I got to see the world in this way where I realized that there's more going on than just me wallowing in my addiction, you know? And after he died, I stayed sober for like three weeks or something, which was absolutely amazing. And then I fell back into it really bad. And just like that winter, <laughs> I woke up one morning and I was like, I will fucking do anything. I will do anything. I will join AA. I will give my heart and soul to the 12 steps. If this is what I have to do, I will do it. And I did. I joined AA. I got a sponsor. I gave my heart and soul to the 12 steps for that experience. It was not for me, but I did that. And the rest of that year, I just kept trying and doing all of the coping mechanisms I had been picking up on for the past decade or so of like trying to quit drinking and just kept sticking with those super intensely. And then also I discovered like the quit lit genre, which is like, there's so many amazing books coming out the past few years, but like Annie Grayson, this naked mind, she is absolutely brilliant. And her book and her program um, really helped shift how my brain worked. And it made me stop feeling sorry for myself when I started drinking again after having a break. And it really cut that shame out of my life. And I started to forgive myself. And I started to believe that I was worthy of like life, love and happiness. And the year in between when my dad died and when I actually quit drinking for good, I was like maybe 95, 97% sober that whole year with a few, what does Paul call it? Like research. Field is, research. research. A few <laughs> bouts of field research or whatever. But just like listening to podcasts, hearing what other people did and trying it knowing the basic ways to have a healthy body and trying it, embracing meditation, embracing mindfulness and gratitude, and just like reading these books like Erica Spiegelman Rewired and Holly Whitaker's book and just believing that the choices that I made and the chemicals in my brain got to this way over a period of years and that the choices that I make now and the chemicals in my brain and what I put into my body, I can forge myself a new path and I can change and I deserve a good life. And I can walk that path and I can make it the path wider over time. And just after that average drunken, annoying night and an average hangover the next day, I was just like, I'm going to read Annie Grace's book for the second time and I'm going to go for 30 days. And then after the 30 days was over, it just kept rolling and I'm at 
seven and a half months. And for once, it's not a lie, you know, <laughs> for once, I'm not secretly drinking behind everyone's back. So it's just that I think the combination of of doing everything all together all at once. And I don't know where the grit comes from. I'm kind of just like a hard headed, stubborn, determined person. And I'm just like, I'm not willing to give up, you know. Yes, so many value bombs in the last couple of minutes of your share. Thank you so much, Early. And I think it was a combination. I'm trying to, I've, I'm taking note, I take notes so that I'm sure that I'm actively listening. And I, and I jotted down what I think was a formula that worked for you is just openness to learn because you mentioned already twice how you had a nudge that AA wasn't for you. And then when you did try it, you tried it and then confirmed that. So you're staying authentic to yourself, which is super important on this journey because what works for someone may not be what works for somebody else. So you stay true to yourself. You are an advocate for yourself is a huge part of the formula. Taking that power back, I think, and taking, taking responsibility and taking that power and just being open to learning. I hear that in your words and it's very inspiring. And I want to also touch on the fact that you've spoken about shame and I'm sure you've listened to Brene Brown when she talks about shame and she talks about the difference between shame and guilt is like with guilt, you said, I did, you say, I did something bad. And with shame, you say, I am bad. I am a bad person. And disconnecting and detaching from that identity of I am a bad person or I don't deserve this takes a lot of work and rewiring and takes a lot of time to flip it to okay, I can see my mistakes for what they were and I have to take accountability and be responsible. But deep down, I deserve good and I am good and I, I will continue to make mistakes, but I deserve a, a, a shot at this, a shot at a different life. You know, I don't have to stay in this situation. So I'm really inspired by your story so far. Thank you so much for sharing. Welcome. Yeah, something else that I wanted to mention with like forging my own way to get sober is like it's the same thing with navigating the world with an autism spectrum diagnosis navigating the world while bipolar trying to figure out how to become sober and then also trying to figure out how to heal from the own my own sexual abuse that i've experienced in my own life and how to heal myself so i don't perpetrate that sexual abuse that i've i've caused in other people's lives ever again so like all four of these paths there is no written formula for how to go about doing any of these things. You can't like open up a manual and follow follow down the down the steps and just be like, "Okay, I did it. I healed." You have to figure out if you're on autism spectrum how to navigate in a world that's not meant for you. If you're bipolar, you have to figure out how to navigate in a world that's not meant for you. If you have an alcohol addiction, you have to figure out how to save yourself in a world that doesn't teach you healthy ways to do that. And the same thing with dealing with sexual abuse in my life and then also sexually assaulting someone else. Like it's my responsibility to make sure that that doesn't happen again, but there's, n I have to forge my own path to healing. Like there's, there's not like a well-trodden path that I can follow for any of those things. Yeah, it's definitely field research in another way. Like, even though you're not drinking, it's still kind of field research always because you're still in that experimenting phase. And, and like you said, there's not like, oh, here's this playbook. You need to follow this. You're just living in the solution every day. And some days that may look very different than others other days. And that, that's fine. It sounds like you've learned to give yourself a lot of grace. And I always say grace with a capital G. 
But tell me more about how is it balancing and navigating symptoms from these different disorders? Like how, how do you deal with cravings or other strong symptoms that, that come to you on a given day? Do the same tools use for all of the disorders or do some things work for ones and then trigger others? It seems like a lot to juggle. Yeah, it's really complicated. But I think that preventative maintenance for everything like has dulled down the symptoms across the board. Like every single day, I make sure that I'm getting proper nutrition, proper sleep, I'm drinking enough water, and that I'm like feeding my soul with whatever, if it's meditation, mindfulness, gratitude. I just making sure I'm taking care of my body and my mind to a baseline level every single day. And that has made my symptoms manageable. Like for whenever I get like a craving for alcohol now, it it's so minimal compared to it used to be so loud. It would like rattle my brain and I couldn't make it go away. And now sometimes I have a trigger and something will come up and I'll just be like, yeah, I see you. I see that, but I don't really want to drink. Thanks. You know, or like I'll go through like a depressive or like a hypomanic sort of state but it's all dulled down. Like I don't need to go back to a mental hospital. I don't like have horrible, like suicidal ideations. You know, it's just like, it comes and goes. And I think just taking care of myself in those very basic ways, it's stronger medicine than anything they can give you at the doctor. Yes. And then knowing yourself enough to know, like I need to do these checklists in order to feel at baseline. Key word here is that you said was manageable. So it doesn't mean that you don't get curveballs thrown at you, but when we feel like we can manage it and we feel empowered and feel like we can do hard things and we can sit through the discomfort, then that's when you really start gaining, I think, that confidence in yourself again, which is built through the journey and through recovery. Tell me about the people around you. I know earlier you mentioned about friendships and people abandoning you when you were going through a rough time. How has your social circle change throughout all of this? And how is it now? Yeah, so I don't know if I would as much use the word abandon as basically, I just don't think it's I don't think anyone was in the wrong when they decided that they couldn't have me in their life anymore. Like I hurt a lot of people and other people had to maintain their own health, their own mental health and their own survival. And when they decided that they couldn't deal with me anymore, that is I don't fault anyone for that. But certainly, as I kept drinking and like having all sorts of like episodes over time, friends, they they exited my life one by one. And, and the, the last few people I was left with are like my sisters and my mom and just like a couple of like my very, very best friends who who never gave up on me. But now the beautiful thing is that the longer I'm sober and the more people see me out doing good and doing the work and like trying to heal and doing my best people that I thought would never talk to me again that I hurt so badly are starting to come back into my life and it's absolutely amazing it it's like inspiring it further reduces the shame that I'd previously felt and makes me not that you have to like feel valid on the approval of other people but like we're certainly a social species so the more that I'm able to like make reparations with people. And the more that I'm able to like heal these relationships, the more confident and, and good I feel about this new path that I'm walking down, if that makes sense. Yes, I love that chair. And you're right, you know, it, 
the the more people see you doing you, then they're coming around. And, and a boundary that was set in the past can be changed and shifted and pivoted. And I've always thought everyone's always trying to do the best that they can. And a lot of the times people close to us, we all hurt people. We are social species and we're not perfect. But I feel like something else that's missing is not just this conversation that you and I are having where we are talking about this happening, but the other part of the conversation is how does society help people like you and I and how do friends and family support us and, and what, what can we say, how can we act? Like that's missing. I know for a fact my husband has been trying to find, he just found a, a group for loved ones of people who have depression and it's taken him a while to be like I just I want to help but there's not a lot of tools out there so that's also missing and then it's like well we can't expect for them to know exactly what to do when we're struggling on or when we're completely effing up you know right like a lot of people who have sexually assaulted others society is kind of like you're evil you're bad you go away now go and be alone in a box somewhere instead of and that leads to people being like in denial that they ever did anything wrong. And my first step down that path was, yes, I hurt someone. Yes, I did something wrong. And how the hell can I make it better? You know, and there just like isn't a framework for that in our society. There's like this desire to delete people who have done wrong. And it's fine if someone's hurt you and you don't want to see them anymore. Like that's your personal choice. But as a society, we need to do better. We need to admit when we've hurt people in this way and we need to like have a path that folks can walk down in order to like heal themselves and heal the harm that they've caused. It's just not available right now. Yes, it's not just a, I'm going to choose to cancel this conversation or cancel this person. I feel like that's a missed opportunity to learn and to grow as a society. So I, I agree with you. All right, well, early, I want you to tell me about a root, like routine and day in the life. I know you mentioned a couple of things that you have to do and that you know that work for you, but what, what's a day for you like and what's a, what's a day in the life of early? I try to wake up at the same time every morning. So a recommendation from Annie Grace actually is to have a morning routine because it cuts down on like the decision-making fatigue that a person can experience through the day if they wake up and they don't exactly know what's going to go on. So I drink water, I walk my dogs, I eat breakfast, I take my herbs, and then I do a short meditation. And then I go out to where I live and I work on a project. I do something that makes me proud of myself, that exercises my body, that exercises my brain, and that I can look at afterwards and be like, yeah, I'm proud of myself. And right now my big project is I'm building my own house. So that's sort of what most days look like for me. And then in the evening, um, sticking to a routine there as well, where I eat dinner, oftentimes listen to podcasts, and then do some yoga, meditation, stretching kind of thing, and then hit the hay around the same time every night. And that sort of routine for me helps keep my head on straight. And, and like I said before, makes any sort of mental illness symptoms or addiction symptoms so mild that I can, that I can deal with them when they, when they challenge me. Well, my follow-up question was, what are you excited about right now? But sounds like building your own house would be the answer to that. <laughs> Tell me more about building your own house. 
When I first moved to the property, there was like this dilapidated old shack built out of pallets. And I was like, oh, I don't know, that's good enough. And I lived in it for like four years, you know, whatever, drinking a lot and being hungover and being like, oh, I don't know, this is totally, this is fine. There's like a hole in the roof. It was not, it was not fine. <laughs> but then as soon as I got sober, I demolished that old house. I like joined the volunteer fire department in my small town. I started doing all of these things that were like really inspiring and beautiful that just like I wanted to do, but I never felt like I was capable of doing. And then like a rotating cast and crew of my hillbilly neighbors and friends have, have stopped by and were building me a house. It's like, it's like my freaking dreams are coming true. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Ah, the possibilities and what happens when you decide to step all in into your truth and your journey. I love this. I'm going to request a photo. You have my email, so I'm going to need a photo of this dream house coming together because this gets me really excited and this makes yeah. me really happy for you. Um, you got it. Thank you, Orly. We've reached the <laughs> rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? See. Sí. C, what would you say to your younger self? I would say stick with it, you're worth it, and things will change for the better, and just believe that. What is a light bulb moment you've had during this journey? Oh, neuroplasticity. Just the fact that your brain is something that you have control over changing, and that if you, if you make changes and you do it over and over and over and over, you can get out of that addiction and not having an addiction will become the new norm and you can change your brain. Yes, repetition is the mother of all skills. So you can choose how to use that in your favor or not. What is right. your favorite ice cream flavor? This is a new one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely chocolate chip cookie dough for sure. Yes. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze and getting help for their mental health? I think a lot of times a story like mine, people look at it and they're like, well, I'm not that bad. So I don't know, maybe I don't have a problem, but don't compare yourself to others. Look at yourself and you're worth quitting drinking. You're worth the change. You're worth getting a hold on your mental health and Wanting to change is not enough. You have to do the work, take the steps. And luckily, we live in this world where all of the the resources are just like coming out in beautiful books and podcasts and Reddit subgroups and whatever the hell. So it's out there. Do the work and you're worth it. Before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if you have woken up covered in blue vomit twice did you eat some candy no it's just like that nasty four loco shit that they used to have <laughs> four loco I, oh. early thank you so much i feel like we could talk for another hour so i really appreciate your time thank you for joining us on the podcast congrats on just doing you and being an advocate for yourself i really think that's very inspiring and i know you're going to help a ton of listeners with this interview So thank you so much. I appreciate you. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good rest of your week. You too. That's a wrap team. Thank you for listening to our interview today. And before I say adios, I want to leave you with one of my favorite Eckhart Tolle quotes. If I haven't already mentioned it 75 times before, I love Eckhart Tolle. And I turn to him, his words and his teachings often. 
I notice that my approach to challenging situations has slowly changed in this journey of recovery. When I'm feeling overwhelmed and I don't know the answers or the solutions to my problems, instead of just searching frantically, I try to slow down. I slow down and I turn to words of people that help me stay grounded, like my bestie E.T. I swear he's one of my besties. He just, he just doesn't know about it yet. This quote is one of my favorites. It says, Life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you are having at the moment. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, acknowledging the good that you already have is a foundation of all abundance. That's also an Eckhart Tolle quote. I love you guys. Talk to you next Monday.